whether you're looking at buying your first house, building for the first time, buying an investment property, or doing a property development but don't know where to start, then this is the show for you. I'm a finance and mortgage broker, and I'm here to help. I invest in property myself, and I love to share my experience and help every one of my clients get the right loan to meet their long-term goals. My name is Chris McGurr, and welcome to our property development journey. It's our property development journey time, and this is episode number three. If you are investing, regardless of whether it's in property or not, you need someone on your team that can give you qualified advice on how to structure your accounts, transactions, and ownership, and the best time to do that is before you invest. This is what we're gonna cover today. To join me in that conversation is my guest. He is an absolute financial taxation and legislation brainiac. He holds many qualifications. He is a chartered tax advisor. He is a graduate property investment professional of Australia. And did I mention he's also a lawyer and solicitor admitted to the Supreme Court of South Australia. Plus, in his spare time, he sits on the board of several companies in financial and strategic roles. He has read more books than I've had hot dinners. He is my own personal and trusted property business and tax advisor, Mr. Christopher Overton of Bartley Partners Accounting. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Excellent. You ready to get started? Yeah, definitely. It's my first podcast, so it's going to be fun. Exciting. Uh, before we kick on, I must say, what a resume of qualifications. Can you tell me how many years have you actually been studying since you left school? Well, I never actually stopped studying. So um, I'm 33 now um, and uh, I've been doing one course after the other since I finished school. I'm one of those people that enjoys studying. So for me, it's just a bit of fun. And is it true that you're actually a registered land agent as well? Uh, so meaning you could start your own real estate business? That's right. So I've got a land agent's license, which uh, basically gives you the real estate agent's um, license in South Australia, so I'm able to buy and sell properties if I wanted to. Not really my thing, but uh, it was a fascinating thing to, to get and to do. What brought you to go and study real estate agency? Well, I was buying quite a few properties and building up a portfolio, um, but I was getting conflicting advice from different real estate agents, and the easiest way to work out what was correct seemed to be just to go and do it myself and get that understanding. Um, so it was, uh, it was a fairly easy one, actually, compared to some of the others. Aside from uh, there's all the schooling, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself personally? Yeah, look, um, yeah, married, first child, got a little toddler called Clara. So uh, outside of uh, business and property, that tends to be what keeps me busy. How old is she now? Uh, two and a half, so okay, great age. I can see why they call it the terrible twos. Yes, um, yes. Good been fun there. though, good fun. Excellent. Uh, and how long have you been operating your business here? Uh, we started Bartley Partners about seven years ago, okay. so it's uh, been in this location, Glen Osmond Road, ever since. Um, we're business and property specialists, so we, uh, we're quite a niche accounting firm compared to a lot of the others. Yep. Um, really focusing on the bits which A, interest me I suppose, um, but B, that we, uh, we're quite passionate about. And speaking of buying and building or developing and selling property, what's your personal experience in that area? Uh, well, I've, I've bought more than a dozen properties myself. I, I still hold 11 in my long-term portfolio. Wow. Um, along the journey, I've done a lot of subdivisions. Uh, so I've done subdivisions in, uh, well, my first one ever was in Taparoo when I was uh, 20, 22, 23. Mm -hmm. Found a nice property on Strathfield Terrace and cut it into three. Flogged them off as house and land packages. 
Um, and, and that did us quite well. And you know, at the time, uh, you know, these days it would be considered a very small subdivision, but at the time it was uh, an epic feeling to get that first one under your belt. I bet. But those, those early ones and some of those uh, easier to access locations really are the best ones to start and um, just cut your teeth on and learn a bit about the subdivision process. Yeah, well, land is, is seems to be the part of the process that's of the premium value. So if you can get in in a lower land value area to, to have a go, uh, you can get some experience. Oh, look, definitely. And um, look, from a dollar's perspective, depending on the deal, of course, I mean, everything's different. But as a rule of thumb, you make 60 to 70 percent of the profit on any deal during the land subdivision process. Well, there's only sort of that 30 to 40 percent in during the build process so especially as a younger investor you know if you're starting young and, and like me didn't have a, a massive bank behind you just what you were able to save up it can be better to start at that sort of subdivision level where you are entering at a much lower cash point um, yeah. and you're able to build up a bit of wealth and sort of you know use use those earlier years to be able to do some of those smaller uh, subdivisions so you're, you're building up your experience as much as your your bank at the same time yeah that's interesting because with our property development journey in the early days and, and you know this because we've had our own discussions about about our project when we first bought the place weighed up the option of doing the subdivision and selling off one half of the land to fund a build on the other half because we wanted to move into into the area and in the end we've decided to build on both sides because uh, the the houses have got a party wall join to make sure we maximize the width of the second story but when other people are doing it yeah often you'll see someone's bulldozed and they're selling off a backyard or or they're selling both pieces of land and not actually building on any yeah, and I think it's a little bit different in your case too. If you want to, uh, if you want to live on one of them, you kind of care a lot more about what's being built next door. But if you're doing it purely from a financial point of view that you're you're in there to subdivide, make some money, and leave, then you're probably less concerned, and you're able to let the neighbours just work out what each of them are going to build. I mean, obviously within the council rules, but certainly if I was subdividing and living in one of them, I would probably care a lot more about what was built in the other one. Than, that's uh, a great point. I've, that's actually come up uh, a number of times for me in discussions with friends who have who have built and they didn't have control of what was going on in the build next to them. Even in their particular case, they had a neighbour who was there who wanted to have a say with every, uh, every forum that went out from the council to say, by the way, there's a development going on, have you got any feedback? And he had lots of feedback. But uh, it makes sense, yeah. So if you're, if you're developing two, worthwhile thinking about uh, doing the build of both of them yourself so you can control what's going up next door. Definitely, it's uh, probably, and, and this is where it all depends on what you're planning to do and how you're planning to do it. No two client scenarios are ever really the same. Property is such a unique asset. It's not like buying shares where, you know, if I buy Westpac shares and you buy Westpac shares, they're an absolutely homogenous asset. They're identical. Yeah. Yep. While no two properties are ever really identical in that way. Yeah. All right, so let's get into the guts of the show. We're going to be talking about accounting and tax, tax tips as part of today's topic in relation to buying and developing property. But before we start, I just have one more question. You're a chartered tax advisor, and then there's, you know, people, everyday people are just going, yeah, have you spoken to your accountant, or I'm, I'm chatting with my accountant about what we're doing, but is there a difference between a tax advisor? Are there different types of tax advisors? And, and you know, when someone tells me, yeah, I've spoken to my accountant about it, what's the difference? Look, there's lots of different accountants, um, and we all specialize in different areas. So, you know, for example, there's accountants who specialise in international tax law and there are firms like Grant Thornton's who are amazing at international tax law. 
not something that I would ever do myself. I'd be useless at it. But my personal specialty as a tax advisor is property and small business. Mm-hmm. So on those areas, I can be considered an expert. But there's lots of accountants with lots of different areas that they specialize in. So you've got your, your mum and pop style accountants who very much help their salary and wage earners. And they're probably much better, more efficient and better value at that than I would be. But at the same time, if they're not dealing with property every day like I am, then mm-hmm. there's probably an area where I can assist a different type of client than they can. Um, so it's just horses for courses. Okay, so it's worthwhile, like if, if you're going to see your accountant, it's, it's worthwhile having a chat about what's their specialty and, their and does specialty? that fit in with what, uh, what your plans are. And look, I always just ask them if they've, do they have a property portfolio themselves? Do mm-hmm. Have they done subdivisions themselves? So there's, there's nothing like actually doing it yourself to really get an understanding of the process. You, you never quite learn the same amount from books. Yes, agree. From a, a tax advice point of view, offset versus redraw, when people are setting up the type of loan that, they're, that they want for their development or their investment, should people pay down their loan and place extra savings into an, uh, into an offset account, have it as an offset account, or pay it down in a redraw? where they can still access those funds and take them out, but they're gonna pay a little bit less in interest generally in having it set up as a redraw versus an offset account. Look, it it does always depend, but as a rule of thumb, you would always pick an offset over a redraw. And the reason being is that the offset means that the loan has never actually been repaid from the ATO's viewpoint. So especially if you're dealing with multiple entity structures, companies, trusts, as well as individual homes, the offset account is a much more flexible option from a tax point of view. The issue with the redraw is that if I pay off, in inverted commas, one of my investment property mortgages and then redraw it, the ATL would like to understand what the redraw has to do with that investment property. And if it has nothing to do with it, we then have to daisy chain that loan to the next development, etc. If it's just an offset account where money's stored, which never paid off the loan in the first place, it prevents a lot of that administrative overhead. It just makes it easier for the client. That being said, I understand from your viewpoint as a finance broker, there's uh, banks don't always appreciate offset accounts and some would prefer a redraw and there's interest rate costs and savings and that's where I always tell clients when they go and speak to someone like yourself it's not just about the cheapest loan it's mm-hmm. about the best structured loan you know sometimes uh, trying to save the last few points on a mortgage is uh, actually pretty self-defeating yeah I suppose uh, it's about flexibility as well so if in one case, we purchase property and it's an owner-occupier, we're living in it, so we think let's set up a, as a redraw as, in, as opposed to an offset, and we pay all this extra money off to try and pay down that loan as a redraw, but then in a few years we decide we actually want to keep that property, but we want to move somewhere else as an owner-occupier, and that property becomes an investment property for us. What happens I mean, yeah, when we want to redraw that money? much worse, because if you redraw that money, it doesn't, doesn't become a tax-deductible loan for you. Um, because you've just redrawn it, isn't being spent on the property. Don't get me wrong, if you redrew 200000 from it and used that to renovate that property, then there'd be those capital works which we can depreciate. But if it's for another purpose, it wouldn't be. So that's why we always try and use offset accounts. And the other thing is that if you are trying to build a property portfolio, there's almost no reason to ever actually pay off your mortgage, even at, at today's interest rates. And even with interest rates rising, it, kind of the equation doesn't change. So with inflation running at about 3% and your interest rates running at what, 2.2 roughly on your mortgage, it's actually basically free money in real terms. You're getting paid to have that mortgage because with inflation at 3%, anything from an interest rate point of view under 3% means that the money isn't actually costing you anything. 
Yep. And I guess if we relate inflation for those listeners who want to connect uh, what you've just said there with their everyday situation, if the price of milk's going up by 3%, but the cost of your mortgage is only 2.2, you're in front. You are. Um, you know, from that point of view, you'd be better off stockpiling milk. Mm-hmm. Um, although that's a bit <laughs> tongue in cheek. But, but from a serious perspective, um, let's say you've got a million dollar mortgage with Westpac and you can, and let's say you've made a million dollars of cash and you've got it just sitting there. If you buy a million bucks worth of Westpac shares, they'll pay you a dividend at about 6%. Or you can pay off your mortgage with Westpac and save 2.2%. Mm-hmm. Now that's a, a very basic scenario and I'm not advising anyone to do either of those things, but it just shows that you'd be three times better off with zero capital growth in the bank shares, which seems unlikely over a long enough time period, to just buy the bank rather than pay off the mortgage with the bank. Yep. Um, and as long as the interest rates are below about that 6 to 7% mark, which even with you know the supposed rate rises coming up would seem unlikely to uh, get up anywhere near there anytime soon, it really isn't worthwhile paying off your primary property and it's definitely not wealth creating. Mm-hmm. All right, so just to, just to recap, having the offset account provides the most flexibility to move around your money for your personal or your investment purposes without the complication. If you do have uh, a redraw facility and, uh, and you are looking to redraw that money out, make sure you, you run it past your tax advisor and get some advice before you do it to make sure you do it in the right way. Look, that's exactly right. And I'm sure most brokers will also go go talk to your accountant first, which is always good. One of the reasons to always use a broker, not just a bank. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's important to get the advice before you do it. There's very little we can do to help you after you've done it. Correct. With our property development journey being about building multiple homes, and in our case, two homes, we can't live with them both. Uh, so we're going to sell one or we're going to rent one. Uh, for our personal situation, we registered for GST. Now this was a discussion again that we had early on. So in the case that we sell, we could do so under the margin scheme. Can you explain what that is, how that works? Of course. Um, I mean, look, you can, do, uh, you can do several topics just on the margin scheme. So I'll try and condense it down a yeah. bit. Uh, but from a look, a very basic point of view, imagine just a single property. We buy it for a million dollars. We sell it for two million. Normally with a business, GST is 111th of whatever your sales price is. So back to your uh, pint of milk, one, well, actually milk doesn't have GST on it, that's a bad example. But if I were to buy a, a chair, I am pay $11, 111th or $1 of that is GST. With property, that would have increased the price rise of land substantially. So what the government did was say that you can pay GST on the margin, which is the difference between the sale price and the entry price. So instead of paying 111th of 2 million, you pay 111th of 1 million. Now, like everything in accounting, there's lots of caveats. It depends if you're able to buy it under the margin scheme, and that will depend property by property. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you buy a block of land from a developer, well then there's actually GST on the entry, which mm-hmm. means that you can claim back that GST at purchase and it's not under the margin scheme. Mm-hmm. So the margin scheme is basically where you buy a property which isn't from a developer, it's from a, a non-GST registered ent- entity. Um, and again, that's where you get the advice when you're buying the property um, beforehand. The reason we're GST registered is that when we sell it at the end, we want to have been able to have claimed all of our costs along the way. So if you spend a million dollars on the build, well, as you spend that, you're going to get a refund of 111th of it uh, from the ATO, which helps from a cash flow point of view, but also means that overall we're tracking the goods and services tax that you're paying throughout the process. Yep. Okay. So in our case, we purchased the land and we subdivided, so that land's worth 450,000. 
Now, the difference between the cost of what we paid for that at 450 and the sale price of 1.1 is 650,000. Yep. All right, so now what we're saying is we're gonna look at paying GST on 650,000, not on 1.1. Yeah, which will just be a tad over, uh, under $60,000. Okay. So there's also other things that you can claim along the way, and you've gotta look at the costs one by one. So for example, demolition of the old property will have GST on it and can be claimed, um, but open space levies that the council charges you during the subdivision are all GST free. So it's case by case, you gotta look at the expenses uh, one by one. And all of this is usually done as a feasibility analysis before the project starts. Certainly, if you were gonna build and rent for the next 10 years, you don't need to be GST registered because you're not technically a property developer if you're not selling within those initial five years of the build. Five years, okay, so that's a key number for people to remember. Certainly a key number to remember. Um, and, and also, I mean, look, it's, it's about what your process and your planning process is. So if you're a long-term holder, then it becomes a capital asset. If you're not a long-term holder, it's a revenue asset. Mm -hmm. When it's a revenue asset, that means it's a business. And when it's a business, it means you've got GST to factor in. If you're not sure, and lots of clients come and go, I don't really know what I want to do at the end, we tend to register you for GST, plan for that as what you know your worst case scenario, if you do have to sell at the end and that's what you want to do. And then obviously, if you do change your mind, well, that's fine. We just inform the ATO, we go through the process. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you need, to, you need to be factoring it in from the beginning because what the worst, worst case scenario is when people do the whole thing, haven't registered for GST, haven't done anything, get to the end and the ATO goes, well, but wait, you're a developer, where's, where's our money? Yeah. And you go, oh, well, we didn't really intend to be. Yeah. Um, and that's not really how it works. His intention is based on what the objective, reasonable person would assume your intention is. And yeah. You, buy, develop and sell. Okay, so I can't just tell the tax man that uh, I'm not a developer because the the numbers don't lie. What I've done is is for a purpose and that was to Well, especially with this podcast running at the same time, that's uh, really hard <laughs> for you to get away with. Yeah, there's no escape for me. All right, so just to recap a key point there, when it comes to doing a development, if you know you're going to be selling one or both or more of the properties within those first five years, you need to get that advice and get registered for GST before you buy the property in the first place. Yeah, right? you need to do it from the start. And as I said, it's so important, the number of people who do million dollar developments with no feasibility analysis, no planning beforehand, you know, it's, it's just crazy. It's like buying a mansion and then not bothering to insure it. Yeah. Um, you know, so you've got to do that analysis at the beginning, preferably before you purchase a property. Um, so when you're in that stage where you're starting to look for one, you know that you're going to do it, you haven't found the right one yet. That's really when you need to be chatting to your advisor and, and working out what that plan looks like, what the costs are gonna be. Um, and then when you do find a property and you go, right, this is what I wanna put some, some money on, well then run it through the analysis, work out how much money you're gonna make out of it with the different options of buying and developing and selling versus buying, developing and holding versus just holding the land as a future development. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots and lots of options, but you need to be working that out before you start the journey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And look, it, it, that leads me towards a common answer when it comes to uh, should I register for GST? You know, how many properties should I develop? What sort of loan should I get? And the answer is it depends. Every time. Depends <laughs> on what's your current <coughs> asset levels, yeah. what's your income levels, what's so, your retirement goals. <coughs> Some people would say that 100000 a year is a a fantastic retirement. Other people would say it's terrible. I mean, there's yeah. no right answers in life. Yeah. It's about what your expectations are. But the key point is, make sure you chat with your tax advisor before you purchase, because if there's any structures that you need to set up, 
for down the track, now's the time to do it. Now, for any listeners that will use equity in their home to invest in a rental property, um, others will buy, build and develop, or move into their new purchase and keep their previous home. To convert it to an investment rental property, how should they go about, uh, how can they manage their debt to be most tax effective when they're moving the funds around? Look, it's, uh, it's a very broad question. So I probably won't be able to give a particularly detailed answer, but the important thing is working out what the debt is funding. So if I'm using my, just to take the first one of those examples, if I'm using my personal home and cross-collateralizing it to buy the investment property, then the bank will lend me 110% on the investment property, providing I've got enough equity in my own home. Now that's a perfect scenario from a tax point of view because that means that the entire debt for buying the property plus stamp duty is all tax deductible. So it keeps my personal homes debt, which is non-tax deductible as low as possible, with my top tax deductible debt as high as possible. Now that is generally the best way of doing it, depending on the difference in how much the bank is gonna charge you between your principal place of residence debt and your tax deductible debt, and also the tax rate you're on. So if you're on the top marginal tax rate and you're getting a 50% benefit from the tax deduction, then it's probably always gonna be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. But if your tax rate is much lower, if we've structured this into a, a company, for example, um, then you know that might be only at 30%. It might be structured in a, a low-income relative's name, which might be even lower again. In which case, sometimes it's actually not worthwhile because the discount the bank will give you on a, a PPR loan is going to outweigh the tax benefit of the tax deductible loan. So it's not black and white. It very much depends on the client's individual situation, what tax rate they're paying, and of course, what the broker is able to organize in terms of the interest rates. Yep. Um, the other option that we see a lot of clients do is create a second loan. So same bank, but two mortgages showing up on their owner-occupied property. Mm-hmm. But that second mortgage, which might be say 500,000, is used entirely for the investment. And then we can track that it was redrawn directly for that use um, and then be able to claim it that way. Um, yeah. And that's still absolutely fine. And if there's an entity in the middle, like a, a company or a trust, we can then have a loan agreement on lending those funds at the at the cost that the bank charges. Yeah, I, I like the, the way you finished that off because it, it really cleans up the scenario and it's easy for uh, the taxation to see what's going on, your, your tax advisor to, to see the big picture and for you yourself to understand out of, out of the debt that you've got remaining, which is that debt that's for your owner occupier you can't claim and which is the debt for the, uh, for the investments that you're making that you can claim. So from a lending point of view, definitely we can easily set up a split loan on your owner occupier uh, where you've got $100,000 owing from a non-claimable point of view and then you've drawn out and created another loan of $100,000 which you're now using as a deposit for your investment, effectively giving you uh, 100% or more borrowing on your investment and being able to claim the whole lot of that come tax time. So um, you mentioned trust there, and this is the, the last question in the guts of what we're covering today, and that is, can we buy in a trust? And why would people consider buying in a trust instead of in their own name? So that question uh, will be answered differently in every state in Australia. So I'm just gonna answer it from a South Australian point of view for the moment. Perfect. Um, and the reason being is that each state levies its own land tax. Land tax is an annual tax to the state government based on the amount of land an entity is holding. An entity can be a company, a self-managed super fund, a trust, or an individual. For individuals, companies, and self-managed super funds in South Australia, land tax doesn't kick in until 450,000 of land. While with a trust, it kicks in at 25,000 of land. So if I'm buying a property to hold for the long term, and let's say it's um, 
worth $500,000. Then I'm going to be paying substantially more in a trust where 475,000 of that will be land tax accessible, giving me a bill of a couple of few grand a year to the state government in perpetuity every year versus in a trust where my bill would be 250 bucks. So, oh, sorry, in a, my individual name or stuff, my super fund, my mm -hmm. bill would be 250 bucks. So there's, there's that disincentive. Um, and that only happened a couple of years ago. You might've read about it in the papers where um, Rob Lucas changed the, the rules on land tax mm -hmm. and uh, you know, Pleiades and Macrosers got a one third discount um, on all of theirs with the, the rate coming down by a third for the top. Um, but capturing a lot more of the middle class with land tax by amalgamating trusts, creating trust levies, etc. Mm -hmm. So what we're saying is if you want to buy and invest in a trust, you can absolutely do it. However, given the changes at that point in time, the government's saying, okay, we'll, we'll let you do it, but it's going to come at a cost. That's right. And so it's become a less popular strategy. So certainly if you look five years ago, most investors were purchasing in trusts because it has the flexibility to be able to distribute profits to different family members, etc. Um, be better from an estate planning point of view as well, because it means those assets can pass to children uh, without going through the will process. Yeah. So there's a lot of estate planning benefits. There's a lot of other benefits with trusts, but they've become a much more expensive vehicle to hold property in for the long term. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that there's one of the a key point there that, that you're making is the flexibility of having a trust. So if you're heavily investing, whether it be in property or something else, and you're using these trusts as your vehicle of, of investment, you can work with your tax advisor on how are we going to disperse the profits of that out of the trust. If if all of those investments are in my my own personal name, I have to wear the cost of that tax regardless. If we go through the trust, we can say it's going to go to my daughter, it's going to go to my son, it's going to go to my wife, other family members, however we choose to do that, and so we can spread the impact of, of tax. Uh, look, you certainly can to an extent. Um, there is a, a subdivision called 100A, which does limit that, uh, that basically says that you, it has to be within the course of usual family dealings. So, uh, you know, you, you uh, do have some limits on that, and certainly with children who are minors under 18, uh, the maximum you can distribute to them is $416 a year before you hit minus tax rates, yep. which uh, is, kind of makes the whole thing a bit pointless. Yep. Um, but look, trusts can certainly be very useful vehicles. For property development, we would tend to use a company owned by a trust. And mm -hmm. the reason being is that the company has that land tax advantage we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. The company would then be liable for the GST and all the rest of it. Um, as a trading company, if it is a developer, then we're looking at a base rate entity, which means it's only a 25% corporate tax rate. And that means that if you're planning to do five or 10 developments, you have less tax leakage along the way. Um, and the reason for that is that you're earning between sort of 45 and 120,000, including Medicare levy, you're paying tax at 34.5%. If you're doing the same development in a company and only paying tax at 25%, we've got almost 10% less tax leakage as we go from one project to the next. The reason we have a shareholding trust underneath is that once a company makes money, you've got a million dollars in it, you want to pay out a dividend, we're then able to use that shareholding trust sitting underneath the property development company to then split those dividends with other family members, as you said, subject to certain rules like 100A and minus tax rates and uh, plenty of others, which we won't bore the listeners with right now. Mm -hmm. But um, that would be the most common structure that we use for property developers. Yeah. For, uh, for everyone listening, I just want to, uh, you can't see us right now, but 
I want to let you know that Chris is not reading from a tax guide at the moment. He is just <laughs> rattling this off as we go. Very, very smart and, uh, and remembers everything like you wouldn't believe. But the key thing is when it comes to trust, yes, it's right for some people. No, it's not right for others. And a number of years ago, the, the government closed and tightened uh, a loophole that allowed people to pay less tax and, and tried to make it fairer across the board. So um, the key lesson again, chat with your tax advisor about what suits your personal circumstances. Right, now I'm gonna put you under, under the radar and we're gonna move on to the rapid fire questions. <laughs> so you can choose to answer these a little bit shorter if you like. What do you think is the number one thing holding people back from investing in property or building and developing? Analysis paralysis. The, the smarter the person, uh, in, in my experience, the less likely they are to actually make a start. Um, there's, there's always a reason not to invest, whether it's property shares or anything else. You can read the paper on any day of the week and there'll be some story about why it's the wrong time to invest. There'll always be some pundit out there telling you it's all about to fail and chicken little style. Yeah. Um, and look, I mean, I've been buying properties for uh, 11, 12 years now. And I would say every single year there has been some catastrophe that is about to collapse the market and it will be the end of the world. And, and it's never happened. Um, and there's lots of things which have shaken it. But you don't buy properties from a long-term investment point of view for a year or two years. You know, you're buying them for a couple of decades. And over that time, we're going to have GFCs and collapses. We're going to have COVID. And nobody was, almost nobody was correct on the effect that COVID was going to have on the property market. That's for sure. Uh, everyone was telling me how property prices would collapse by 30, 40%. And, uh, you know, you sort of roll your eyes and you, you help clients, you know, come to grips with the fact that just wait and wait it out. And of course, now they're up. By 20%. So yep. you, you just you need to be able to look past the noise and look at it from that long-term viewpoint. I like that. That's a, that's a really great piece of advice. I th I, it makes me think of procrastination. It makes me think of the the common term. If if I knew then what I know now, um, <laughs> people would do things differently. So well, um, if they knew then what they know now, they wouldn't believe themselves. They wouldn't <laughs> trust themselves, and they still wouldn't do anything. I mean, procrastination is a great one. Um, you know, it's a number of people that uh, are overweight and tell you they don't have time to go to the gym. And you go, what, <laughs> did 18 hours a day that you're awake, at what point didn't you have time? Yeah, <laughs> correct. So, um, yeah, I, I think that makes me think of just chucking something up on the whiteboard, putting something down on a piece of paper, like here's where we are now, this is what that scenario might look like, get a piece of advice, and you know what, take a step forward, have a go. All right, so... What about uh, your personal property investments? What's the one thing or habit that you think has made you successful in your property investments? Planning and goal setting. Um, so from a very young age, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't born with any wealth whatsoever. So uh, building a little bit for myself and mm -hmm. my family was something that was important to me. And so I planned it out. I worked out what I would need to do, how I would need to save, what I would need to be able to do and to, to purchase. I didn't buy my first properties in you know, blue chip eastern suburbs locations. You know, I bought, I did a, one of my most profitable subdivisions ever was in Mount Gambia. Wow, um, five, five hours out of town. Five hours out of town, 10 hour round trip to drive down there, buy the property and drive back. It was, uh, it was a fun day. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we bought a, a two houses on a single block that hadn't been subdivided. Um, so one was a three bedroom, one was a two bedroom. Bought it for 207,000, subdivided it. Both were being rented out, so we had to realign one fence and pay for a subdivision. Bank revalued it at about 350,000. Wow, um, so it feels like an overnight increase, essentially. Massive, well, it took us about 12 months. So yep. like all overnight successes, it took time. 
But from a percentage point of view, that was probably one of the most, I mean, obviously from a dollar's point of view, it's quite small, but from a percentage point of view, it was massive. Yep. Um, but then the equity in that allowed us to go buy two more long-term buy and hold properties. So, yeah. so you don't need to start with a million dollars in the bank. You don't yep. need to start as a you know, person of wealth from some rich family or something. Yep. Pretty yep. much anybody is able to do it. But they need to change their mindset. You know, a lot of people only want to buy if it's five minutes from their home or where yep. they grew up. Well, that's great if you can, but uh, for a lot of us, that's not realistic. Um, yeah, yeah. So. so have a think about uh, the investment that you're doing and, and make a plan. Make a plan, set yep. some goals, put some time limits on the goals. So, you know, some smart goals and get some advice. Thinking about our listeners who are interested in property investment, subdivision and or building, if you could recommend one book or provide to provide direction, uh, inspiration and or motivation, what would it be? I'm not sure if I could ever narrow it down to a, a one book. Um, <laughs> uh, look, um, I, I think uh, just to include a third Chris in the conversation, um, The Effortless Empire is a really good one. Okay. Um, so, and, and that's from a buyer's agent who, who has spent a lot of time looking at helping everyday people to purchase properties for long-term capital growth. Right. It's not really from a development point of view, but it does a really good job of explaining the basics of how property investment works and what you're really looking for long-term. So that's a really good one. Obviously from a sort of, you know, more financial grounded point of view, you know, you'd be looking at things like Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. All of the tax in there is completely wrong because it's American, so please don't <laughs> read it and then come in and tell me what you're gonna do. Um, it's happened so many times. But look, the very basic core concepts are actually quite good. And uh, I think he did a follow-up book, Cashflow Quadrant, and, and look, it's, it's not all of his own creation. Like a lot of it is is knowledge, which has been out there for a very, very long time. Uh, the richest man in Babylon uh, yep. has uh, was a, a series that was done uh, many, many years ago, that, that oh, decades ago, that uh, discussed a lot of the same concepts. But look, those basic concepts are really what you need to start the journey. Um, and then from there, it's about keeping up to date. So you know, subscribing to podcasts like this one, subscribing to to property magazines, and and having that interest in the sector and what's happening. Um, yeah, yeah. It's also about, you know, hanging out with friends and people who are also interested in it. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing that you can't learn over a glass of wine at a barbecue, depending who you're at the barbecue with. That's true, that's true, yeah. A good point there on being cautious about the books that you read. You know, take the strategies and, and, and the guidance out of it, but be careful about whether it's related to the area or the legislation that, that, that you live in. Look, absolutely. It'd be a bit like if uh, you and I sat down and wrote a book tomorrow, um, you know, The Two Chris's Guide to Property. Um, <laughs> it'd be great today, it'd be great tomorrow, but in five years' time, if we haven't updated it uh, probably five times, um, it'll be completely out of date because the, the laws do change very fast. Everything that I've told you on this podcast might be wrong depending when you're listening to it. Well, we talked about trust before, yeah. you know, and, uh, and you might grab a book off the shelf that's going to talk about trust as the way to go, but then five years ago they changed the rules. Well, five years ago, well, about three, two, two to three years ago they changed the rules. Five years ago, um, I would have said trust is the way to go. There you so, go. So, yeah. you know, it is... It is something which changes. And I mean, if you're in Victoria, the land tax legislation is different again with their trust levy surcharge. Yep. So, you know, it's, there's no one size fits all. Um, yep. That's why there's so few brilliant books written about property because you'd be spending a lot of time keeping them up to date. Yeah. All right, last one, the time warp question. So you've, you mentioned you've invested in a number of properties and you've got to a number of properties in your portfolio. If you could go back in time to before you completed your first build or development, purchase, property investment, 
what three pieces of advice would you give the young version of yourself to make it as success, successful <laughs> as possible? Um, so, I suppose the first piece of advice is to be more confident and go harder. Uh, okay. When I was younger, I probably started a bit slower than I could have, just because I was being very cautious. It must be the accountant in me. And was that the paralysis analysis? Oh, uh, I, would, I would do one a year and I would go, okay, my goal is to do another one next year. There was no reason to. I mean, by the, you know, my, my wife and I slowed down a bit when we uh, decided to have our first child. But, um, you know, before that, we were getting up to two a year, three a year, and there was nothing really stopping us, uh, except that for a long time, we had in our head that you do one a year. Yeah, um, so right. Definitely, that would probably be the first thing I'd tell them. Uh, also, be careful how much you do yourself. Uh, so when we first started, my wife and I would go out and we would putty and paint and we would put up lines and we would do all sorts of stuff, which um, were very energetic back then. And uh, I, I really <laughs> wouldn't do any of that today. You know, you, you just cost it out, you, you get in an expert um, and you end up with a much better quality job than uh, DIYing as well. So that's fair point, fair point. And it t- takes a lot of time. It does. You know, it's and, 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 you know, of all of those hours, you could be, you know, with a, with a paintbrush and patching things up and doing all things yourself and then going down to Bunnings and buying stuff and, and double checking prices. That's a lot of time you could be investing in yourself to what's the next investment. Oh, 100%. Um, and you get so much better bang for buck out of the, the education, the planning and, and moving on to the next one. And I mean, look, it was good to do one. Uh, honestly, yep. it was fun to paint an entire house and do it up. <laughs> but, you know, it's not fun after that, which yep. is probably another reason we went a bit slower is that we were DIYing far too much. So, yep. yeah, stop the DIY stuff. It's, it's short term, might save you a couple of bucks. Long term, it's a complete waste of time. Yep. Number three? Uh, have more cash reserves than you ever think you'll need. So always be careful with the amount of cash reserves. I, I got, uh, I think probably my late 20s, I was quite arrogant about how good my feasibility analyses were. Yep. So I kept uh, skipping out on the contingency. Uh-huh. Never skip out on your contingency. Yeah. Right, you're gonna need it. Every so often you're just gonna need it. We, we did a subdivision up in Fairview Park and the council changed the rules on us at the last moment with our community waste management system. It was basically just how big the piping had to be at the front and they changed the size by about 10 mil, which meant all of the piping quotes we got were useless. But because none of the piping was changed on any other house in the street, we then had to spend money on special valves to actually be able to get it connected to anything else. Mm-hmm. It ended up costing 20000 $30,000 more than we budgeted. Wow. Um, and we still made good money on the deal, but I just never bothered to put the contingency cash aside, which mm-hmm. I did when I was starting out and progressively stopped doing. So it doesn't matter how many of these you do, keep doing the contingencies, keep expecting to be wrong on occasion because stuff will happen. Yeah, yeah. That, that I can can relate to that particular scenario. I have a friend who built a house and then it wasn't until during that process he worked out that there was no gas line coming down that street. And because he was the first development, he had to pay all the extra money to get a gas line in. Whereas normally you're only paying a few thousand dollars to connect that particular house. So he's chosen to have a couple of gas bottles installed to to run his gas, which is long term is actually worked out quite cheap for him. Well, it's much cheaper than trying to move a gas line down the street. I mean, I had to move it across a road once. It was on one side of Glenburn Road and not the other. Uh, and APA charged, I think, $15,000 to move it across the street. Wow, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. look, um, unless you have uh, <laughs> unless you really, really need it, gas bottles, amazing invention. Yeah. All right, so we have, first of all, uh, you may be able to go harder than what you think. You know, So do your plan, like you mentioned earlier, but if you're succeeding at your goals, uh, you may be able to keep going. Um, number two, 
careful how much you spend on do-it-yourself. It's gonna take up a lot of time and a lot of effort and it may be fun up front, but don't forget to budget in using the experts who are gonna make it look a lot better and save you a lot of time. Number three, Always have more cash reserves. Always have more cash. That's actually come up a few times. So give yourself a, a buffer of, of cash. Yeah. So for our listeners that would like to receive personal advice specific to their circumstances, can they engage with you directly? Yes, of course. Look, we're always happy to, to meet with the new clients, whether they're just starting out their property development journey or if they're you know further advanced and just looking for another pair of eyes and a bit of strategic review. They can reach out to us via our website uh, or call our office. Schedule a meeting and have a bit of a chat about where they're at and where they're planning to go. Cool. And make sure they do it before they invest. Most important thing. You, if you come to me after I've already, you've already done everything, then there's probably a limit to how much use I can be. Um, the benefit and the value is all in the advice and in the planning stage, not in after it's, everything's already been executed. Yeah. Look. Because we've gone through COVID, and I know personally that, uh, that I work with a number of clients remotely, do you ever get clients where you, where you work over the phone or, or oh, over definitely. a video call, so if, if, if they were not local to Adelaide? Yeah, look, we, we, I'm on Zoom every day, mate. I think most accountants are, it's, uh, lawyers are as well. It's, it's just one of those professions where we can uh, help with a lot of things remotely. Yep. So look, if, if clients are nearby, it's always great to have a coffee and catch up in person. But look, if they're, uh, you know, we support a lot of clients in rural South Australia as well as Victoria and New South Wales, always happy to jump on a Zoom and, and chat that way. Perfect. All right. So uh, for listeners, I will pop on a link on the details of the podcast um, so you can connect direct with Bartley Partners and, and catch up with Chris if you want to have a chat about your personal circumstances and, and start to plan your next investment or financial future. So Chris... Thank you very much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your, your time and your expertise um, for, for me personally in our project, but also for sharing with everybody else. My pleasure, Chris. Great to be here. If you're enjoying the show, give it a five-star rating. Thank you very much and see you guys next time. Thank you for joining us on our property development journey. If you'd like help arranging finance for your first mortgage, investment property or build, or perhaps you just want a free mortgage health check to make sure you're saving the most money, head to the podcast description where you'll find details on how to get in touch with me directly. I'd love to hear from you.